Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetInst.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. That's what I think is so funny about this. It's like a hundred years on. These things that he's talking about remain as live as ever, as sort of as complex and as urgent as they were back in Vienna, literally a hundred years ago. So that it feels to me like he was really onto something. And I don't think that's true of every thinker of the 1920s or every psychoanalyst of the 1920s. He really, he really, ha- he's like a heat-seeking missile. He has this ability to sort of put himself in the most contested zones of our emotional lives. Today, we are joined by author Olivia Lang to discuss her new book, Everybody, a book about freedom, which explores the body as a mechanism for understanding the world around us. She does this through the story of radical psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich. A contemporary and friend of the famous Sigmund Freud, Reich believed that the body communicated things that his patients could not articulate. In many ways, he's the often overlooked father of trauma and somatic therapy. In Reich's view, unexpressed reservoirs of emotion, if left unprocessed, led to the buildup of a sort of muscular armor that patients carried with them for life. Though Reich's later work, which featured increasingly eccentric ideas, has led to his erasure within the common psychoanalytic discourse, Lang reminds us that Reich's belief in freedom from oppression and dominion over our bodies and our lives is just as prescient today as it was 100 years ago. And she challenges us to think about the stories of our own bodies within this larger cultural context. Thank you for joining me. Congrats on your latest book. I loved, I thought it was so beautiful and and deftly done, the way that you sort of weave from 
this idea of sort of our bodies as the mechanism for understanding and sensing the world and the ways in which we metabolize our narrative history in the world and then sort of bringing it all the way out to activism and how we engage in the world. It really, I thought it was beautiful and left me thinking for a long time. And I love that it's about sort of its loose thesis or its core is about Wilhelm Reich because as is the way in the collective consciousness, like I just learned about him through some meandering random pulling of a thread. And I was like, this, what is this? It was through an archae, it was through an anthropologist who has fascinating ideas. And then I went and sort of was looking into his life and saw that he is currently like into, into Oregon and the, what the box and that he's been like completely in the same way that Wilhelm Reich was sort of thrown out for going off the deep end, this guy has also followed that same course. So it's really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about Reich and sort of how you crafted a book around his story? Well, I didn't mean to. I think the thing is, I meant to write a book about why it's so hard to inhabit our bodies at this moment, sort of the beginning of the 21st century, it felt like there was this onslaught of stories about, you know, violence to do with the kind of bodies people were in. There was the refugee crisis in the UK, there was the rise of the far right really across the world, and then the rise of Trump. So it felt like this moment in which all sorts of groups of people were being objectified and subject to violence because because of their kind of body because of their skin color because of their gender because of their sexuality and I was really like didn't we solve these struggles in the 20th century you know what about the great freedom movements what has happened and I wanted to go back and try and understand what had gone on there like first of all why why our bodies are subject to those kind of forces but also was the struggle for freedom over? Had we reached the end of that? Or was this just another sort of twist in a long story? And I knew that Reich would be in the book. Like I looked at the original proposal recently, I started five years ago and his name is definitely there, but I had no idea that he would become so huge in it because whatever area I went into, if I wanted to write about sexuality, if I wanted to write about anti-fascism, if I wanted to write about activism, there was Reich. If I wanted to write about imprisonment and incarceration, there was Reich. So gradually I realized that his story sort of took me everywhere I needed to go and that he could form the sort of skeleton of the book. But that was really tricky as well because he's a really complicated character. You know, he's not straightforward. He's not totally likable. And some of his ideas are intensely meaningful and useful. And some of them they're really woo-woo, they're really out there. And, you know, he paid a heavy price for those kind of ideas. So, you know, to a writer that is completely fascinating and gripping, like this is a difficult person and this is somebody who goes to lots of different arenas. Okay, he's going to be the whole of the book. Can you give a quick summary of Reich and then we can talk about, you sort of nail the, the breakup between Reich and Freud as being this, the, yeah. kind of this intense moment or sort of this this division and the way that their views of the world continue to impact us. For people who aren't familiar, as I wasn't, can you give us a little bit of a backstory? Absolutely. So it starts really at the end of the First World War in Vienna. And Reich is a young man. He's been a soldier and he is very poor. And 
brilliant, like incredibly intelligent and sort of voraciously hungry for life and for ideas and very passionate young man. And he's training to be a doctor. He doesn't really like it. And then he encounters the ideas of Freud. And this is the moment where if you encounter the ideas of Freud, you can go, I'm going to go and knock on Freud's door. And that's what he does. He literally just knocks on Freud's door and is like, what should I read? And Freud, this happens throughout Freud's life. Freud sees this young protege, this brilliant young man, and he's like, great. I, he, they sort of fall in love with each other in a platonic way, but there's this intense bond between them, like a kind of father and son bond. And Reich sets up as a psychoanalyst. He becomes a psychoanalyst and he has these two immense ideas very early on in his career. So first of all, he starts thinking, his patients are talking to him, it's the talking cure. And he thinks what they're saying is not the whole story. Their bodies are talking to me. They're sitting on the couch, they're lying on the couch and they're saying all these things haltingly. And at the same time, their bodies are communicating reservoirs of feeling. They're communicating pain or grief or shame or anger and what he felt is that people from early on in their childhood they have emotional experiences that they're told not to have they have experiences of trauma that they're not allowed to cry over they have experiences of anger that they're not allowed to vocalize often it's gendered boys don't cry girls don't get angry and and he felt that if these things weren't felt, if they weren't expressed, people tighten up and they create a kind of armour, a sort of muscular armour that stays with them lifelong. And I think we all instinctively recognise this. And actually, if you think about it, it's what actors are doing all the time. The actors are showing you what a character is like by how they hold their bodies. And I think we all instinctively know how to read that. We recognise those sort of set faces of fury. We sort of veer away from somebody in the street because we can feel anger coming off them or intense sadness, loneliness, these different moods. So this is Reich's first idea, but then his second idea is he's working in a working class clinic and the patients he's seeing, he realizes what's happening to them isn't just to do with the family. It's not just Freud's idea of what happens in the domestic realm that's in, impacting on them. It's political, it's social, it's to do with poor housing, it's poverty, it's to do with their work relationships. So he's like, you know, a lot has to change. To heal my patients, a lot has to change, and the body is the ground by which it can change. He tries to unite the ideas of communism and psychoanalysis, communism and Freud, Marx and Freud, and nobody likes him doing it. Everybody's angry, Freud in particular. And by this time, we're in the 1930s. Reich has moved operations to Berlin and it's the rise of Hitler. And he sees absolutely that Hitler has to be resisted. He sees that this is something that has got to be counteracted with full force. And the breakup with Freud has often been described as like their ideas diverged, but actually looking into it deeply, what happens is that Freud wants to stay neutral. He wants psychoanalysis to remain neutral through fascism. He believes that that's a possibility. And Reich says, absolutely not. We can't do that. We have to resist it. And he's almost like the sacrificial lamb. He's thrown out of the psychoanalytic institution sort of as a sop to, to Hitler and to the Nazi party. And that's the tragedy in his life. That's the moment where he really 
loses his context, loses his support network, and he moves to America and he starts to have a very different set of ideas. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash PTT. He's such an interesting character because you look at this, the beginning of his work, and this is what we believe so wholeheartedly today. This is the, the basis of most good therapy. It's somatic. The body is needs to express itself, as you said, to metabolize these experiences. We are recognizing increasingly that these traumas, which, as you said, are very complex, intergenerational, social, political, historical become stuck in our bodies, inaccessible, and we don't know how to just metabolize it and move it out. So in a way, it's like we are living, and and Freud's version feels so in many ways out of touch. And obviously we have the Jungians, et cetera. There are many schools, but it's interesting how so much of it is Reikian, and yet he isn't credited or he's been discarded because his ideas went a little bonkers. And obviously we love, you know, we love to judge people only on the totality of their life. We, we're so, it's so hard for us to parse, right? To accept some parts and be like, ah, this, this is crazy. So can you talk a little bit about, we don't have to go into too much depth, but about sort of Oregon and sort of where he went nuts only because it is part of our <laughs> cultural yeah. history here and obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. the imagination of a lot of people. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, but just before I say that, I think you're so right. Like that book, The Body Keeps the Score is yeah. absolute, which you know everybody has read now. It's It's been a bestseller for years and years. And that is so Reichian. That's so much the Reichian argument, but he isn't credited. So what happens is he comes to America and he, you know, he's already talking about energy. He's already talking about how our bodies work systematically, how they hold emotions. He's, he's, he has a feeling of a sort of life force that can get blocked. So it sort of makes sense that his next step is to start talking about a life energy. And he, he believes he sees it. He's on holiday in Maine and he believes he sees this universal energy pouring through everything. It's in flowers, it's in grass, it's in people. He calls it orgone. It's blue. He sees it as blue and he thinks other people have seen it before. He thinks Van Gogh has seen it. He's like, this is, this is a thing people have recognized, but I have named it. And he invents a contraption that he thinks will help people to charge up on orgone energy. He thinks that it gets blocked in people. We know that. So, okay, how do you get it moving again? And this box is, it's like a closet. It's like a little sort of telephone box. You sit inside it. It's got layers of steel wool. It's not going to hurt anybody, but probably it wasn't doing what he was thinking it was doing. And then it gets sort of taken up by beatniks. So William Burroughs has one, Saul Bellow has one, Norman Mailer has one. You know, it's, it's kind of around in the counterculture. Sadly for Reich, he does an interview with a woman called Mildred Brady for the New Republic. And he doesn't realize it's a hit piece. In some ways, he's a real innocent. You know, he's from the old world and he's come to the new world. And he doesn't quite understand things. And he speaks to this person who writes a hit piece about him and the Food and Drug Administration pick up on it. And for the next decade, they spend a quarter of their resources trying to stop him, trying to investigate him and trying to stop him from doing what he's doing. And eventually... He is, there's, there's a court case. He's told that he can't peddle this machine anymore and he breaks the injunction and he is sent to prison and he dies in prison. So it's this kind of tragic tale. His books were burnt. He's the only person whose books burnt on American soil. And the books that were burnt weren't just stuff about organ energy. It was the mass psychology of fascism also burnt by the Nazi party. So you start seeing that it's not just about the organ accumulator, his ideas, more broadly were considered dangerous and that's the thing I find so fascinating about it yeah no he is fascinating and this idea of Oregon or this blue light I mean it's not that it's not crazy it's the you know the contraption etc but what's crazier as you mentioned is like in the way that he was persecuted by the FDA and the ways in which as I mentioned I sort of came to him by way of this anthropologist mm. who's trying to take up this fight and it's like it is still being sort of slam dunked on on wikipedia etc in a way that's like this is it's kind of an amusing historical anecdote i mean not his life and the end of his life but it is wild how this idea of a box can get people so exercised literally but but that it is so that there's something so damning, particularly because so many of his other ideas make such an incredible amount of sense. And you also, you know, when you talk about sort of that heartbreak between Reich and Freud, you write about how Freud 
ultimately believed that in sort of the corralling of humanity, that oppressive forces were required and policing and rules and, and yes, we can't live in complete chaos, but he was sort of arguing not the opposite, but this idea that freedom should not be curtailed by these oppressive authorities and that we should have dominion over our own bodies and our own lives. And obviously there's some line in between those two things. But it goes to sort of this idea of like the fear of the of the matter, the fear of the human, of our animating impulses and this need to sort of slap it down versus what would the world be like if we could all be fully expressed. And I think the thing that we haven't mentioned is sex, that for Reich, a lot of this was it, it's sexual energy that he's talking about. And he believed that people... If people could be sexually expressive, then they would achieve some kind of liberation. And I think that was a problematic idea in the 1920s. It was an idea that frightened people. And I think it's still a very complicated and problematic idea now that there's something, like I said, there's something naive and innocent about him. He believes in the goodness in people. At the same time, of all the sexual liberationists, he's the only one who really understood what rape meant. He's the only one who really understood what sexual violence meant. And I think it's probably worth saying something about his childhood here. He was the child of an abusive father who beat his mother until she killed herself. And that legacy of understanding what forces are arranged against women's sexual expression, his mother had had an affair and that that was why his father began to beat her. And it's so clear in his writing that he understands what patriarchy means. He understands the violence of patriarchy in a way that feels incredibly modern and incredibly vital to our moment. He understands that sex can be a very malevolent force, but he believes that's patriarchal capitalism sex. And he thinks that there's something underneath that that is, I don't like the word purer, but that is kind of wilder and freer and that we can tap into that. And that again is a very beautiful vision of Reich's, I think. Yeah. And wasn't his, didn't his dad sort of use him as a tool against his mother in the sense of making him complicit in her sort of torture? I mean, that's such a terrible story. But I think that it it's exactly that, right? You know, if you think about it in the context of the feminine principle or the feminine energy being this chaotic, creative mother, mater, matter, and then this sort of oppressive, you know, the, the, when when masculinity becomes too expressed, too toxic, this need to oppress or control. And if yeah. you think about sort of the feminine as the body as this this vehicle of creativity and and generation and the ways in which we bring sort of that animating energy or life spirit into the world. And then this desire to be like, well, no, we'll say when, we'll say how, we'll say the mechanism by which it can be expressed, which feelings are okay. It's like trying to govern the ungovernable in a way that, of course, we get completely twisted about sort of what's ours, what's not, what's me, what's the world. And then, of course, like what's me up here in my brain versus my body, right? Like that disconnection becomes really confusing in in a way. That's what I think is so funny about this is like a hundred years on these things that he's talking about remain as live as ever as sort of as complex and as urgent as they were back in Vienna literally a hundred years ago so that it feels to me like he was really onto something and I don't think that's true of 
every thinker of the 1920s or every psychoanalyst of the 1920s. He really, he really, ha- he's like a heat-seeking missile. He has this ability to sort of put himself in the most contested zones of our emotional lives. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. I love how you open the book sort of with your own somatic experiencing and trying to understand, you know, the strange, you know, the strange way in which certain practitioners try to read and understand the body. And I know you trained as an herbalist. You write about it as a narrative, a type of narrative healing that requires understanding the store in order to diagnose and treat. And then it's like, again, it's sometimes when we take these ideas to the point where they become dangerous. I loved the discussion of, because you sort of connected this for me, the discussion of Louise Hay and and her book, You Can Heal Your Life. I cannot believe it sold 50 million (laughs) copies in 1984. But that's where like sort of this idea becomes pernicious, right? That not only does your body tell your, but you're responsible for your body's illness by virtue of your thoughts and sort of, again, it goes to this idea of like your ability to control the uncontrollable and how it manifests in your experience. Yeah. The Louise Hay story is fascinating. And, you know, she, she was big already, but she, she really profited off the AIDS crisis. That was, that was her big thing. You know, there's this community of people who complete pariahs at that moment and, not getting treatment anywhere else. And she opened her doors to them. She set up the hayride. She had people coming in. She had these very sort of charismatic healing sessions. But the baseline of what she was saying is, you can change this. You are experiencing illness because of a lack of self-love, because of a lack of confidence, because of guilt. And if you can shake off those emotional feelings, you will be healed. Well, okay, confidence, guilt, all of those things obviously play into how our immune systems work but they don't stop a virus. And the virus is also, as Wright tells us, political and social. So it's multifactorial, illness is multifactorial. And her kind of accounting of it, it becomes so crude and so cruel as well. It's like polio is caused by jealousy. You know, she literally writes this sort of (laughs) ABC of illness and you're like, okay, so what about the vaccine, honey? You know, there's a lot more to illness than just our emotional states. But on the other hand, If you look at complete allopathic medicine that leaves out our emotional lives altogether, that also is sort of damaging to people and is only telling half the story. So there's definitely a middle ground that is a wiser kind of medicine, but there's a side to 
the new age movement and its its influence on healthcare that is incredibly toxic and dangerous i think yeah and i think we're certainly experiencing that now yeah. and and in the context of you know obviously qanon or or vaccine hesitancy and it's it's and i understand why people are like i just want one i want one lens through which to understand the world yeah. and it needs to either be ca- completely chemical and biological sort of through a microscope or it needs to be through emotions or it needs yeah. to be through sort of political context or you know it's sort of in Reich's world you almost see him just widening that aperture right and yeah. starting with the body then expanding to sort of the bodies of our you know the collective body of our yeah. political functioning and as an organism of society and then you see him trying to sort of expand it even more, at which point maybe yeah. he's really onto something, but he <laughs> loses people and condemns himself. But it is, it feels like everyone just wants to go in at one specific point. And through that yeah. specificity, you lose the wider context. And suddenly everything else is worthless. Yeah. And I think that increasingly that's just so dangerous and we can't, we can't do that. We have to look at things from multiple aspects at once because that's that's the world we're living in it it does run on multiple channels simultaneously we we all do really know that that we have an emotional life we have an intellectual life we have a political and social life and Mm -hmm. we're working in many systems all at the same time and again this is this is what makes right so kind of exciting is you know nobody had invented the word intersectionality at that point but that's what he's talking about he's talking about the way that we carry multiple identities and yeah. they all land inside our bodies this is the ground at which we are experiencing all of those different things yeah and then i love how you took it out and let let me see if i can connect this without making it confusing but i think that in the same way that we it's very comforting for things to be binary, right? Good and bad, light and dark. Yeah. And that's sort of the sphere that we want to exist in individually. And it's really hard for us to hold the collective. I think that we also get so easily overwhelmed, understandably, about sort of the the manifold number of factors and problems and issues and threats and things that need to be solved. And I think that we're living in a strange time also where and maybe this is me alone, but I continually have to remind myself, like, I'm not the only one who's worried about these things or working on these (laughs) things or contemplating these things. And so I loved the sort of study at the end of Nina Simone and other activists and, and like fascinating people. I was really excited to sort of like see through your eyes, Bayard Rustin, et cetera, and what they brought to their world of activism. And it's like that moment, I think I made a note, but when when Nina Simone is like talking about, if you don't mind if I read to you, you write about how her life is feeling meaningful. And you say, as an activist, she had a sense of dignity and purpose that had been lacking right through her adult years. Singing freedom songs, she told an interviewer, helps to change the world, to move the audience, to make them conscious of what has been done to my people around the world. When the organizer Vernon Jordan asked her in 1964 why she wasn't more involved, she had snapped motherfucker, I am civil rights. A song is not a gun, just as a painting is not a protest march, but that doesn't mean it has no effect in the outside world. 
And, and then she talks That's about how it's not quote. her job. To, yeah, it's an amazing <laughs> Motherfucker, quote. I am civil rights. It's so I brilliant. Am civil rights. Yeah. And then she's like, I'm not the doctor to cure it. However, all I can do is expose the sickness. That's my job. But I loved her, you know, showing up in, in this world that you write about as an example of like, well, I it's my job to be me. It's your job to be you. Nina Simone was doing her own version of, of activism. And in a way that I found deeply comforting. Obviously, she's sort of a once in a lifetime talent. But this idea that like, we each have our own part of this, again, mm-hmm. like our own thread, that's our whatever the expression of our gifts, that moment of activism and not necessarily being responsible for the entire thing, because that's deeply overwhelming. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, we're speaking on the day that the climate change information has come out that feels like a very overwhelming moment. I mean, it feels like a very frightening moment, but I think the the one sort of really heartening takeaway I wanted from this book is it is a long struggle. It is a long struggle and many people are participating in it because I think we all feel overwhelmed. We have more information than humans have ever had in any moment in history. We know so much about what's happening in different places in the world. And I think the danger of that is you become scattered, you become depressed, you become incapable of action, you become paranoid, all of these different things. And I think just remembering that you have to play your part. You don't have to solve the entire thing. Like you say, there are are many millions of people who also want to change the world for the better, who also don't want a planet on fire or a planet underwater, who want a planet that has justice for people, no matter what kind of body they live in. So I think that sense that you do your part feels to me like, well, that's achievable in a way that solving the problems isn't in any way achievable. It's, it's not down to any of us. It's not down to any of us who are alive right now. It's, it's a transgenerational struggle as well. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. 
You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepsleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. There's something too, you know, I was reading this book that's coming out shortly. It'll probably be out by the time this runs called Saving Us by Catherine Aho. And she's, I think, the head of the Nature Conservancy. And it's sort of this practical, it's a practical guide to climate change in the sense of talking to people, how to have conversations about it, because I think it's, yeah. it's so frustrating. And her point is that it's really only there's I can't remember who it is who sort of breaks down the spectrum of people's concerns sort of I think it's she does it on the basis of sort of North America but it expands to global from you know very alarmed down to dismissive which yeah. is sort of another preferred word for her than you know denial and the denier the dismissives are only 7% yeah. everyone else is somewhere on the spectrum but the wow. dismissives See, are very terrible. loud isn't that cheering? Yes. I think that's incredibly cheering. I think most but, of us want a livable planet. It doesn't seem too yeah. much to ask. Exactly. And her point is like you can start to meet people where they are based on that continuum, whether it's that they are ardent skiers or divers or yeah. really into wine and sort of move them, you know, meet them there. And yeah. but she her point was, you know, in the same way that, you know, going back to Reich, like a single trauma can inform your whole life that the negative impact is such a a rock in the pond, right? But that similarly, it becomes overwhelming because the people who are the naysayers are so insistent and so loud that they have an outsized impact in terms of like most likely as a, I know, you know, as a concerned citizen, I'm not like trolling people online. And, but she of course receives tons of trolling and she was like it's just this very loud insistent like yeah. I'm gonna find you and it's bots as well but like I'm gonna hammer you in a way that's like the two are not equivalent it's not a 50 50 debate yeah I think is that burning. is so crucial to remember yeah and actually to to the idea of just reaching people where they are and being know about gentle but communicating to the fears that people really have because I think that's the other thing that Reich shows us is everybody is carrying around these senses of trauma and vulnerability and everybody has built protections around them inside I think most of us really do want a planet that is pretty good for our children and our grandchildren you know I think it's a very small amount of people who do not give a shit about that so the sense that people are afraid and then when people are afraid they become dismissive or violent or harsh in many different ways I think understanding how that works understanding the sort of mechanism of vulnerability to cruelty is really important to know in many in many different arenas not just to do with climate change so this is sort of another thing where I think right can be not just enlightening but like crucial for this time yes no everyone has the story and you know, it's wild. I'm writing a book and I put out a survey that was long and intensive. I just don't know any other way. And a bunch of people took it, which was amazing and very generous. But it's it wasn't going out and asking people, like, tell me your most traumatic stories. Like, I wasn't solicited, yeah. I wasn't fishing from that specific pond. But what was interesting to me is 
one, how willing people are to reveal themselves, and two, how everyone has something. You know, it is, it's quite, it was quite moving. I've had to take frequent breaks because it's so much to metabolize, but whether it's the death of a child or being molested or, you know, a parent who took their own life, like it was a profound experience in the sense of how hard life is, even though it's so beautiful and amazing on the whole. Again, it's like 99% awesome for most people. And then that 1% can really have an outsized impact on the way that you experience the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think absolutely. And I think, you know, the thinking of the relation between vulnerability and armor that people do those kind of pains that people carry, people create defenses around them. You know, we, we know that we see that in our friends, we see that in our families, we see that in people that we're close to and the defenses are all very different from each other. And some of those defenses are not, attractive or not easy to work with but there's something behind them and I, I just think that that model makes it much easier than like that person has a horrible character or that person's toxic a thing I really hate because yeah. I don't think people are toxic I think people are damaged and I think those two things are very different from each other well, you know right. toxic it's sounds it... irredeemable and damage sounds like something that most of us are on some level or other that can be restored. And yeah, we obviously quickly resort to sort of the ad hominem, like, I don't like her. I don't like him. Yeah. He's a bad yeah. person. It's like, no, you don't like this behavior. Yeah, exactly. But our ability to sort of wholesale reject the humanity of people or to align them along these ideas of like good guys and bad guys is really problematic as we try to move forward and our, you know, as we relitigate history, yes, it's really important to sort of examine some of these, some of, and some of the influential people mm-hmm. who we revere and adore and to be like, oh, these were some really problematic ideas. Yeah. There's context around these ideas in the time and that we've obviously come a long way without sort of burning them on a stake, you know, it's really interesting how we and and Reich's a perfect example of someone who probably would be as revered, <laughs> yeah, as young and Freud, you know, if we hadn't, yeah, we hadn't been canceled, you know, yeah. by the FDA or deemed irredeemable or insane. And I wish we, I wish we were better at sort of parsing. Not accountability is obviously really important. I'm yeah. not suggesting for for a second that that's not, but but that we could be better about holding space for the full spectrum of someone's humanity rather than just sort of rejecting them based on one part of their life or that one of their ideas that we might not agree with. Yeah, and I think as all of that, the context of how things happen and why things happen is so important. It was really important to me when I was writing the book, not just right, but the other figures in it, that they're all complex characters. They're all people who ways in the sort of social media environment that we're in now would have been cancelled, including Nina Simone, who was violent to her own daughter. And Andrea Dworkin is a very complicated character. And that that whole sort of second wave feminism conflict around porn meant that she was somebody who was really vilified. And I, I wanted to have characters like that in the book, because I wanted to say, 
you can pick out ideas that work for you now. You can be pragmatic about this. You as reader can be pragmatic and think that is useful to me right now. That's a tool I would like. You don't have to think, is this person a saint? And would I follow everything that they ever said? Because that person, I don't think exists. I haven't encountered that person and certainly not as an artist or as a thinker because those people tend to be actually subject to the forces that they're also trying to make work about or trying to resist. They, they are as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable as anybody else to those malignant forces. They're vulnerable to the kind of injustices and sort of warping effects of mm-hmm. white supremacy, of patriarchy. And I think that's really important to remember and to be able to go back to the past with a sense of what is useful to me now in order to make the world that I'm in better seems a wiser way to me than how can I litigate against every person in the past and how can I it's the binaries again how can I sweep them into this group the good group and this group the bad group because people don't work like that they're both all of us I think are both yeah we all are and I think in in demanding perfection and holding people accountable to the social standards of today without really ever I mean and none of us can really understand the full context of any time like we weren't there it's Mm. really it's it's just shutting down of conversation at a time when like we really need to be talking to each other and and we need um, to take risks with each other I think we need to be able to say things that might be wrong we need to have that one of the most touching things Reich says when he's being prosecuted is I demand the right to be wrong and I think that's so important right now that while we're trying to figure out our way with these very very large questions it's important that we can suggest things it's important that we can try out things and that they can be wrong because I think if everybody's operating on a if you're not perfect then you're out it's very hard for anybody to say anything or risk any new ideas and that doesn't feel like a particularly useful climate to be in when the challenges in front of us are so vast. Well, if you can't tell, I loved Everybody by Olivia Lang and was just so thrilled to be introduced to Reich. Because as mentioned, I had sort of encountered him, but almost from the opposite side, from the discussion of him as, you know, this quack who was, and this idea of Oregon that have been continually, you know, sort of perpetually pushed forward and shut down. And I didn't realize that he's really the fountainhead of a whole new type of therapy, uh, type of therapy that I personally love and find incredibly healing and helpful. For those who have listened to me do podcast interviews for years, you'll know like about sort of my somatic experiencing and this idea that I believe is so true. It's so felt or that has been my own experience that you know, our stories really do live on in our bodies in ways that can short circuit us in our subconscious in a way that we're not even aware and that we're continuing to act these things out. And And I believe that we do this intergenerationally as well, and that sometimes you're in a pattern and you're stuck and you are trying to sort of understand why. And the reality is it might not even be your story. It might be your grandparents' story. It might be, It might be so old that you've there's no way you can you can pick up the thread or really understand where it came from, but there are ways to let it go. And I just, I loved our conversation about, and it's a hard conversation and a touchy conversation, particularly right now and particularly 
it seems, for many women of how can I participate and engage and stay engaged? That line between wanting cookies of affirmation and reassurance that you're a good person and that you're thinking about everything in the proper and appropriate way, balanced against feeling like you do want to understand and explore and ask questions and being very concerned that you will say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or offend someone or, you know, be violent with your language in a way that's not at all uh, mapped to your intention. So I love this conversation for that because I think that's also a conversation we need to be having about the lack of conversation and we all need to build some strength and durability around digging in so that we can build bridges with each other and as you know as she was saying you know build this survivable world and really address some of these global environmental concerns that have us all in their clutches thanks for listening to this week's episode you can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at the elisepodcast.com please sign up for my newsletter i promise i won't spam you or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I really appreciate it when you share with friends because word of mouth is how these shows grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Stivic, Lola Grasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.